of my mic like at a clip of one or two per Sunday, so I'm really like concerned that it's on there. It did fall off, actually. I looked down and I had to pick it back up. Um, hey, listen, I'm so glad to be here in worship. Um, I was telling Albert a few a few uh, weeks ago, uh, when we first moved here, and you know, you guys know where we live in Stanford Place, when we come over that hill, I have this, this view of the mountains, and it's a beautiful view. And every time I crested over that hill, I felt like these butterflies in my stomach, you know? I'm like, wow, that's really beautiful. It's, it's extraordinary that I get to live here and see this beautiful view of the mountains. And I was telling Albert that a few, about a month and a half ago, I crested that hill and there was no butterflies. And it just reminded me of one of the effects of the fall is how oftentimes we get into this vein where we treat the extraordinary as if it's common. You all know what I'm talking about. When I lived in the Bahamas, this was the case. I'd be walking on the beach, and, you know, tourists taking photos, and they'd be looking at me like, oh, isn't this awesome? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's my backyard. It's not a big deal. Get over it, right? But I I say all that to say that, you know, I really hope that you all fight and guard your hearts from turning the extraordinary aspect of worship into something common. And you know, I get it. There are times when we come into worship and it's not, you know, we don't feel the warm fuzzies. Okay, I, I get that. But, but you know, we should be fighting to make sure we do because worship is an extraordinary thing that the God of heaven thinks so much of us that he would come and be in our midst as we worship. That's something to fight to make sure that we, can, that we keep. And I hope the, the extraordinary aspect of being in worship and being with people and hearing the word of God, singing the word of God, praying the word of God, that we never get tired of that. We never treat that as common. Because that's what happened to the children of Israel, by the way. And that's how they ended up in bondage. They began to treat the holy, extraordinary things of God as if it was common. And that led to them going elsewhere, looking at other gods because they were chasing this feeling of excitement and wonder. And God says, no, you should work and fight in your heart to make that of me. And so I pray that 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 might not be us here at CVBC, that we don't get comfortable with worship, that we don't treat that which is extraordinary as common because then we would be in, in trouble. Well, that's the first sermon, like first breakfast, you know. Um, so time for the second one. Well, we, we've been going through an Advent series um, on the Savior that comes and brings gifts. So that's what we're, this is the final week of that. And um, I'm always sad when there's a final week in a sermon series. And I'm like, man, now I finally understand this text. You know, I wish I could go back and preach it again. Um, but I don't know. You'll probably hear it in another six years when you've forgotten it. You know, that's what pastors do. We recycle stuff because we know people forget it, and then we bring it back, and they're like, that's amazing. No, we learned that six years ago, and you forget. All right, uh, let's look at God's Word, Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to read the whole chapter, and, um, and I pray that today might be a blessing to you. Let's read God's Holy Word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see 
or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lie down, shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hands on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant of the remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. And they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. And together they shall plunder the people of the east. And they shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab. And the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. And strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across his sandals across in sandals and there shall be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remain of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt all fresh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of the Lord shall endure forever and this is the word that will be preached unto you amen and amen let's thank the Lord and pray Father, this is your word. These are your people. Bless them now by the teaching of your word. May, they, uh, may the teaching take root. Holy Spirit, enliven their hearts and minds. Give them ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, bless us all now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, uh, if you look at this text, Isaiah chapter 11, we've been talking about the Savior that comes to earth and brings gifts. In verse number one, we looked at how the Savior came, will come, and did come to earth. And he came and he brought the gift of hope. He is the shoot that comes from the stump, and that is a sign of hope. And then in verse number two, we looked at the Savior who came to earth and brought the gift of wisdom. He brought the gift of wisdom. And then, of course, in verse 3 through 5, and you could even go from 3 all the way down to 9, 
a Savior that came and gave the gift of justice. We looked at that last week, and today we're going to come, we're going to look at the Savior who came to earth and gave the gift of restoration, and that's primarily from 10 to 16, but we clearly see aspects of that in 6 through 9. Now, what is biblical restoration? Well, biblical restoration simply means this. It means that God, by his grace, through faith, takes us out of the kingdom of this world, this kingdom of brokenness, this kingdom of depravity, and he gives us uh, something different. He gives us a new purpose. He gives us a new status, and he gives us a new identity. That's biblical restoration, that God takes us from the kingdom of this world, establishes us by his grace through faith into the kingdom of righteousness, and then he gives us a new purpose, a new identity, and of course, a new status. Recently, I was reminded, um, I was reading the practicing of the king's economy, and I was reminded of how the story of Rahab is the perfect story of restoration. I mean, think about the story of Rahab. Rahab was a part of the kingdom of Jericho. And as a part of the kingdom of Jericho, the highest status that they gave to her was that of being a prostitute. They took advantage of her, they exploited her, and they abused her. Prostitution was as good as it gets for Rahab in the kingdom of Jericho. What made it worse is that Rahab was trapped in a vicious cycle. She had a family that she had to take care of. Later on in the book of Joshua, we learned that she had siblings. She had brothers. She had a mother and a father and possibly children of her own. And there was no way that... uh, that Rahab was going to break out of that cycle because that's what was assigned to her. That was the identity assigned to her. That was the purpose assigned to her. That was the status assigned to her. But one day, Rahab heard about another kingdom, amen, and another king. And she heard about how this king takes care of the people in his kingdom and how this king loves those that are in his kingdom. And how this king is willing to give everything that he can to protect the people in this kingdom. Incidentally, this is why God told the children of Israel, do not get an earthly king. Because all earthly kings do is exploit and destroy. But they didn't listen. And every king in Israel did the same to them. But of course, God was different. You all know the rest of the story. Rahab uh, became a woman of faith and believed in what God had done, uh, was doing it through the life of the children of Israel. And the Bible says that when um, the two spies came in faith, she protected them. And when the children of Israel came back and they saw that scarlet, um, that scarlet uh, handkerchief that she put out, the Bible says that they went to her and they restored her. Now, if that was the end of the story, that would be wonderful, right? That would be a lifetime movie. But that's not the end of the story because you all know that's not how God does restoration. Because God didn't just save her and tell her, okay, you stop prostituting. God does something different. God gives her a husband. 
he rewards her with a husband. And her husband's name is Solomon, which means in Hebrew, God rewards. And he didn't just give her any husband. He gave her a husband from the line of Judah. And he was a wealthy man. And God gave her a husband that didn't care about her past and what she did in her past. God gave her a husband who loved her and, and recognized the faith that was in her. And they had a son. And his son, her son's name was Boaz. And Boaz grew up hearing about how his mother was a pagan who came to faith. And when he was older, he met a woman who was also a pagan of faith. And her name was Ruth. And he performed the Leverite marriage to Ruth. And Ruth became his wife. And again, you all know the rest of the story. Ruth and Boaz had a child, and they named him Obed. And Obed had a child whose name was Jesse. And Jesse had a bunch of children. And the youngest one was a little ruddy one who was a precocious and annoyed the heck out of everybody. But eventually, God worked in his life, and he became king of Israel. Her great, great, great grandson became the king of Israel. Now, that's where we would stop, right? That's the Lifetime movie. That's a rags to riches story. That is wonderful. But again, you all know that's not how our Lord operates. When he restores, he restores completely. And if you go 20-something generations down to her great, 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 you, you know how many that is, right? 20-something generations down, she has a great-grandson who didn't just save two people. He didn't just save one nation. His blood would save the whole world. You see, beloved, that's the picture of restoration in the Bible. That's what God does for each and every one of us in this building. When he plucked us out of the kingdom of darkness, when he plucked us out of the kingdom of this world, he gives us a new purpose, a new status, and a new identity, just like he did for Rahab. He completely restored Rahab, gave her a new purpose, gave her a new identity, and now if you turn to the book of Matthew chapter 1, she is in the line of Christ. That's a beautiful picture of restoration and what God hopes to do with all of his people. Rahab went from being unloved to loved, undervalued to valued. She went from being the king's prostitute to the daughter of the king of kings. That is the picture of biblical restoration. Now, there are three things I want us to see from this picture of gospel restoration. The first is this. No one is beyond restoration. No one is beyond restoration. There are people that I'm praying for right now. One of my best friends growing up, Justin, if he's watching, I hope he's watching, right? I've, for years, I've been praying for Justin to be restored, for God to save him. And year in, year out, it seems like he's getting worse. 
And I have to remind myself that no one is beyond restoration. There's some of you inside here today that have a friend or a relative, maybe even a child. Maybe someone you know and you're thinking there's no way that God can save them. They're too far gone. That's not what the Bible says. The story of Rahab reminds us that no one is beyond restoration. That God delights in restoring people like Rahab, people like us. Do you realize how beyond restoration we were? It took the blood of the king of kings to restore us. No one is beyond restoration. The second thing I want you to know is that restoration is a process. When I was in seminary and we studied the the passage of Rahab, you know, everyone picked at Rahab. Oh, she lied. Oh, you know, Rahab um, continued to sell herself for money. She continued being a prostitute. People said, oh, well, she should have left Jericho. Because that's what you would have done, right? You wouldn't have lied. You would have stopped what you were doing, and you would have left Jericho. Well, can I tell you that you probably wouldn't have? Rahab was in a tough position. And it took almost a year and a half later for God to come and truly deliver her and restore her. But her restoration is complete. Restoration is a process. That's why we should show grace to one another. Because it's a process. And everyone is on a different plane in that process. But I love by the time you get to the New Testament and you look at James and Hebrews, they don't remember her for what she was. They remembered her for how God saw her as a woman of faith. Because that's how God sees you when you are restored in his image, as a person of faith. The last is this, a restored life doesn't restore itself. Do you know that? A restored life doesn't restore itself. A restored life needs a restore. It needs for someone to come and change us. A restored life cannot change itself. And that's in this passage what Isaiah is saying. That's the meat of the passage that Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 11:10 and all the way down. He's talking about a restore. Look at the restore. The restore is going to be a signal for the people of God. That's what it means. He's going to be a signal that restoration is happening. That's what the signal for his people means. In verse number 10 and verse number 12, he will raise a signal for the nations. In other words, Christ is going to be the restorer, the one who will bring all peoples together, and the one who promised to restore all people. But not only that, in verse number 11, it says, in that day, what day? Well, the day in which Christ will come to restore his people. In that day, the Lord says that he will extend his hand to recover his people. The hand of the Lord is not shortened, nor is his ears too heavy that he cannot save. Because the hand of the Lord will come to restore his people. That's the power of restoration that we have at our disposal. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? 
Do you believe that God can restore and has restored his people? Absolutely we should. Christ coming to earth and dying on the cross was the beginning of the revolution of restoration. And that's what's inside us today. That power is in each and every one of us in this building today. Now, for the remaining of the time that we have, I want to look at how this restore actually restores. How does this look? What does this mean for you and I today? Well, there's two ways in which Christ restores. We see this in this passage. Look at verse number 13 and 14. We see the first way that Christ restores is that Christ has promised to heal divisions. He's promised to heal divisions. Notice with me in verse number 13. It says, The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Amorites shall obey them. Now notice in verse 13 specifically, the word of God talks about the jealousy of Ephraim. And it says that the the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. Now, what is God talking about? Well, God is talking about the jealousy that Ephraim suffers is the jealousy that he feels. That there's this cycle of brokenness between Ephraim and Judah. And by the way, Ephraim and Judah in the Bible is reminiscent of the northern and southern kingdoms. And the fighting and the cycle of fighting that occurs between these two kingdoms. And God is saying this, the jealousy that Ephraim has uh, toward uh, Judah and that Judah has towards Ephraim, he's going to break that jealousy. And the enmity that exists between Ephraim and Judah, God is going to break that enmity because there's a cycle of brokenness there. Now, most of us know about this cycle of brokenness. We experience it in our own lives, in our own families, in our own situations. And God says when the restorer comes, one of the first things he's going to do is he is going to prevent us from harming one another. Now, how does this work out in our day? Well, how many of you are familiar with the phrase, hurt people, hurt people? Yeah. It's a spiritual principle. That the hurt that we feel is the hurt that we dispense on others. That's what's in this passage. The hurt that Ephraim feels, he gives it to Judah and vice versa. And that creates this cycle, God says. And God says, when I come, I will prevent hurt people from hurting people. In her book, Hurt People, Hurt People, Hope and Healing for Yourself and Your Relationships, Dr. Sandra Wilson talks about why it is that hurt people hurt people. Why is it that when you and I get hurt, we end up hurting other people? And she says the main reason for this is because this is a self-protection mechanism. That when we get hurt, we reflexively, animalistically want to hurt other people. Because we don't feel like we have a protector. But beloved, that's the beauty of this text. In this text, we see that we do. 
that the restorer has come to be our protector, to heal our hurting, to address the brokenness in our society. And this has practical ramifications. Recently, I was reading a story written by the Banner of Truth. And this story was written a long time ago, and it says an early communion in New Zealand. This is about the 19th century, and it was, uh, in this case, there, were, there was this scene where two Marari chiefs approached the Lord's table for communion. And one of them was trembling. His name was Tamati. And as they approached the table, he was trembling, and he took communion with this other tribesman. And afterwards, they came to him, and they said, why were you trembling? And he explained that, uh, Tamati explained that Panapo, who was the other tribesman, years before had killed and eaten his father. And he was trembling because, because of the gospel and because of Christ, he was called now to be in fellowship and communion with this man. And he said this, this is an exact quote, he said, He added that only the gospel, only Jesus, which had given him a new nature, could make him eat the same bread and drink the same cup with the murderer of his own father. Pause and think about that for a moment. That the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God was so present in that moment that this man ate the Lord's Supper with the person who killed and ate his father. What can bring that level of restitution between two people? A restore. Jesus. You might say, well, pastor, how is that possible? Do we understand that when we partake of the elements, that when we worship together, that there's actual grace being conferred in our midst? That's what was on display in New Zealand that day as these two tribesmen, these two um, cannibals came together, that now they can feast and be in fellowship with each other, not uh, under no other banner but the banner of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, there's some of us inside here today not talking to someone. I don't know who it is, it could be a parent. It could be a relative. We're upset because of something that they, that they did. Really? Did they kill your father and eat him? Because if these two tribesmen can be reconciled to Jesus Christ, if you are at enmity with someone, you can reconcile by the power of the gospel. But you know what the problem is? I think sometimes we like just being upset at people. That's the power behind hurt people hurt people. I could preach all day, and you can hear sermons about reconciliation, but until you realize the power that's in you, and until you realize the power at your disposal, it will not matter. And what these two tribesmen realized was that they had a power that surpassed their own power to hold grudges. And they laid all of that aside in humility and grace and fellowship at the table with each other. What is it going to take for us as God's people to have this level of reconciliation? It's going to take death. Jesus said it. 
If any man will come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and pick up his cross and follow after me. From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? It's because you will not deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow after Christ. That's the only explanation. Pastor Dennis, you don't know what they did to me. Yes, everyone has a story. May I remind you Christ has a story? Of how they persecuted him, an innocent man that never did any wrong. And yet, on the cross as he was getting nailed, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My family is touched with unforgiveness. And I yearn to see reconciliation. Your families are touched by unforgiveness. And I pray reconciliation in your families as well. But beloved, in order for that reconciliation to happen, we need to be people of prayer. And we need to be people that pursue after it. It's not just going to happen. It's going to happen through prayer and reading the word and you laying down your pride in order to make those steps to reconcile. Will it be hard? Absolutely. Do you think it was easy for that tribesman to come to the Lord's table and fellowship with someone who had killed and eaten his father? No wonder he was trembling. I would tremble as well. But he was trembling with the power of the gospel fully upon him. I want you to notice the second thing quickly, how God delivers his people from bondage. Notice with me in verse 15 through 16, there's two uh, imageries being given here of God's people coming out of bondage. He says, the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. That's a reference to exile. That God has delivered him, his people from the exile of, of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it in seven channels. All of this is the imagery of the exile that God will lead his people out. And then uh, Isaiah connects that to verse number 16, that there will be a highway from Assyria. What is he talking about? The people of God will be led from Babylonian captivity through Assyria, and that happened. This prophecy was fulfilled when the Babylonian captivity ended. And it's this theme of exile that runs all through the Bible of God delivering his people from bondage. He said, when the restorer comes, he will deliver all of us from the bondage of sin. What a powerful imagery that God desires to deliver his people from the power of sin, from the presence of sin, and from the penalty of sin. That's what this passage is saying. Recently, um, I started following a filmmaker, and he has a ministry called Chosen One, Chosen W-O-N. And one of the reasons why I started following him is because his ministry is designed to help people who live on the streets who are drug addicts and alcoholics. And I don't know if you know this, but the area that our church is in is ravished by alcoholism and drug addicts. And I wanted to get a sense of what I'm up against as a pastor who has to minister in this area. And so I started following this man. And he started showing the lives of two women. And the timeline to me was incredible. 
If he, he showed them on day one, and then he showed them a year and a half later, and you would not believe how much these young women had deteriorated because of drugs in their life. I mean, it was just incredible. You looked at them, and their face was sucked in, and they had bruises on their body. And, and you can tell that the drugs had so captivated their lives that it began to destroy them. It was a destructive element in their life. And even though people tried to help them, give them money, uh, provide things for them and the like, they just kept spiraling downward and downward and downward. Because that's what bondage does. When you are in bondage, you get worse and worse. You don't get better. You know, one of the more destructive things about the doctrine or the theology, I should say, of evolution. Some of you are studying evolution now. When I was a kid and I studied evolution, one of the things that, uh, that struck me about evolution is this prevailing wisdom that man is getting better. That we're getting better. That we have evolved in our thinking, we have evolved in our technology, and that means we're getting better. I don't know what world people are living in, but we are not getting better. We're not doing less drugs. We're not exploiting each other less. Society is not getting better. We're not getting less murderous. We're not stealing less. In fact, the absolute opposite. We are getting worse. And the reason why we're getting worse as a society is because our society is hooked on a different kind of drug, the drug of money and sex and success and entertainment and education. That's the kind of drugs our society are hooked on, pleasure. And this keeps God's people in bondage. But the word of God tells us that when the restorer comes, and by the way, he has come. He has come and he is resident in your life if you are a believer. And it is his job to prevent us from going down that cycle of brokenness and pain. But that's why we need the word of God and we need prayer and we need to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit that he can break the cycles of pain and hurt that so put down God's people that keep us in bondage. And this is the message that you and I are called to give to the world, that the restorer has come. That you don't have to stay in the cycle of brokenness and pain, but you could be delivered from that cycle. That you don't have to go year in, year out, suffering underneath the bondage of this world and the drugs of this world that keep us in bondage. That that could be broken. And it was broken by the cross. This is the message of Christmas. Beloved, that the restorer has come. And now that he's here, he has promised to restore all things. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father... Indeed, we are thankful that as the restorer, you have come. And you have promised to put all things and make all things new. Oh, Lord, thank you for bringing hope and wisdom. Thank you for bringing justice. And thank you for bringing restoration. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much that you are always at work. And we see it clearly. Help us to give you glory and help us to take it to this world that desperately need it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Please.